Welcome to the Africa Speaking Podcast. The podcast discusses critical issues about the African continent. It is brought to you by Toyota Communications in Nairobi. My name is Kimani Njogu. In this edition, we continue with our second episode in our two-part series of this podcast with Professor Nganga Wahu Mushiri. So, which takes me now to another area of interest to me and I believe to our listeners, which is because most of these challenges are not unique to any African country. They cut across the continent where there are challenges of, you know, dichotomies Mm -hmm. because we all experience colonialism. Of course, the manifestations may have been different, but we did experience it. And then it continues, colonialism continues in different forms. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, adopting a Pan-African perspectives to Mm -hmm. resolving these issues and minimizing the gap between the continent and the diaspora would be a good way of moving forward as we look for solutions because we we are in the business of looking for solutions now. That's very true. Yeah, I don't think we have any other option other than a Pan-African approach. Nyerere used to say, and I think this comes up in the Arusha Declaration, that as much as Tanzania at the moment wants to develop, they can't base their form of development on financial capital because this is a young, newly independent nation, less than five years old. They just don't have that kind of financial capital. That cannot be the basis of the development, as opposed to human resources and labor, right? That would be the basis of development. And in the same way, in 2022, the African continent has to take advantage of opportunities, right? Um, Our languages, the diversity of languages is an opportunity. The population, uh, the age, the, the demographics, right? That's an opportunity that we can take advantage of. And the best way would be to think about it from a Pan African perspective, meaning if a young computer scientist produces an app in Niger, there should be no linguistic, no trade, no government barriers for launching that app in the Congos or in Ethiopia, in Djibouti, in Mauritania, in Kenya, right? It should be a seamless kind of adoption um, and deployment of that app. If a trader in Uganda has goods to deliver down south to Zambia, that should be a seamless, you know, the first thing they should be worrying about is not what are the visa requirements for me to get into Zambia? Mm. That's bizarre, and we lose, right? The idea that to this day, if I want to fly from Nairobi to Burkina Faso, I most likely have to pass through Belgium or France is... Or London. It's beyond bizarre. <laughs> and we end up losing, right? That's the saddest part that we end up losing on a lot of opportunities. So yeah, Pan-African approach, including the diaspora. Including the diaspora. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's very interesting because in literature, where we grew up visiting other African countries. So we grew up with the Sadawi uh, for Egypt and we Semen Osman for Senegal. We grew up with Chinua Achebe, Wole We went to South Africa. We went Makere to... Makere was right next door. Yeah, Makere was next door. I mean, we read African literature from across, from across. the countries yeah. and that was the way in which we were able to visit our brothers and the diaspora, of course. I mean, all the way in Black the Caribbean. Yep. We did all that. George and Padmore. 
George Padmore, Derek you know, Laming, Castle of My Skin. Yes. We read all these books and were able to get into that world. Mm-hmm. So literature does open up this immense possibility for us to understand each other more. And it seems that there must be much more deliberate work to build this Pan-African consciousness. And I think that because most of these ideas happen in the mind, I think the intellectuals, the African intellectuals, have a very big role to play in doing this. They do. And yes, and this returns me back to the question of language that we've approached multiple times and also to the conversation we were having earlier about the production of knowledge. Yes. And the responsibility by producers of knowledge to make that knowledge available, not just in European languages, but also in some way, shape, or form, also available in, in African languages. You know, for all intents and purposes, this podcast should be happening in Sheng and Swahili, yeah. right? We need to do that, A, but B, we actually gain by doing that, right? That, that when we talk about land in Sheng, something different happens, something positive happens, and some of the questions that we have about land policy may be answered when we force ourselves to think about it in Sheng, when we force ourselves to discuss the same topic in Kimero or Kigiriyama or Kitaita, right? Yeah, so production of knowledge, that's that's pretty important. And which comes back to the fact that at the moment, the kinds of things that we read as literatures from the African continent are hugely dominated by literature in European languages, right? In English and French. And yes, obviously we read and speak French and English and all these other things, but we also speak um, Yoruba and Igbo, and we need our fiction to be published in those languages as well. We need poetry in Chui, like readily available. Um, we need poetry in Lingala, readily available. And yeah, th- there's a there's a gap there, and what happens is that publishing houses at some point in the 60s, you know, kind of did one thing and African languages were not that thing and we haven't quite figured out a way to get that. And it doesn't mean not publishing in English or French, you know, this is where translation studies comes in. Absolutely. And for me, it's a win-win. We create a lot of employment in translation studies, but we also make this knowledge available in, in our own languages and uh, ultimately in the realm of creativity and that psychology of education new ideas happen when you're moving a text from one language to another. It's interesting um, you say that because, you see, uh, as you know, most of my writings have been actually in Kiswahili and I have committed myself to write mm-hmm. more, mm-hmm. in fact, more in Kiswahili mm-hmm. and more in Gekoyu yeah. because you have this facility of language mm-hmm. and we can move in and out of these domains mm-hmm. of language and give our people, because it's our responsibility. I, yeah. you know, I agree with you totally. It's our responsibility to provide knowledge in the multiple languages that we have. I think it's also an intellectual responsibility, isn't Mm -hmm, it? mm -hmm. Because we grew up speaking these languages and then something happens in the university that kind of disconnects us from these languages. Yeah, there's a hierarchy that says knowledge of production in Kikoyo is below knowledge of production in English. But if you think about it critically, what what we grew up doing or what folks are still doing on the streets is what Google Translate is finally finally getting to do, right? This idea of switching quickly and swiftly between languages. we That's how we grew up. That's what we were doing. Absolutely. As a young teenager, I used to do interpretation in my local church from Kiswahili to Gekoyo, from Gekoyo to Kiswahili. That's a tough job. Yeah, so, and that's how my skills, uh, linguistic dexterity Uh, got sharpened. So I think that we do need to pay attention to issues of language. But you see, there are people who argue, and I think this this will be a topic for another day, Mm -hmm that 
the diversity of languages on the African continent actually works against the continent in terms of the Pan-African ideal and that uh, what you require is the minimization of this linguistic diversity to create this Pan-African vision mm-hmm. and that maybe what you need is to do zonal, you know, regional languages mm-hmm. and give them more mm-hmm. salience mm-hmm. and minimize the presence of the more localized mm-hmm. languages. What, what's your view about this? I think that's a bizarre argument. I think that's a dumb argument. I'm thinking the European Union, right, yeah. where folks who speak German and French and Italian and Finnish and Finnish, you know, that's puts you at the top of the pile when you're going for the job, right? That's an advantage. Yeah, and to me that argument also goes back to this idea of order and discipline and trying to, to minimize. You know, if I as a colonizer come into a space and you folks are speaking ten different languages, you're making my work extremely hard to colonize you and to keep you in tow. So I'm, the first thing I'm going to do is make sure that you're only speaking the one language that I know. Um, if it's not English, I'll at least try and minimize this 10 to maybe one or two, right? If it's if you really insist on having multiple of them. Because if I can hear and listen in on your conversations, obviously I can control you much better. So there is that conquest part of it. But there's also this other thing that, you know, 21st century education is about kind of this all-rounded, holistic, and knowing multiple languages is always an advantage. A and B, I don't think we've ever fully figured out how many languages a young child can learn simultaneously. I think it's a lot. Mm. I think it's five to seven plus, Mm. right? And the argument that we don't have the resources or that we are confusing a child by speaking to them in four or five different languages is, I, I don't think we've ever figured that out. Kids can handle a lot of languages. A and B, whatever else that child ends up doing, whether it's an, you know, they end up being a computer scientist or, a, you know, working in media or working in space, I fundamentally believe that their facility in seven, ten different languages just massively improves whatever else they do, right? Whether it's in the humanities or the sciences or economic policy. So the idea that our languages are an impediment, no, that's that's bizarre. It's actually the opposite. Our languages are probably one of our best um, resource. I mean, yeah. we are amazing um, resource. The, yeah. the ways in which we enter history, yeah. we enter medicine, mm-hmm. we enter, you know, our lives and mm-hmm. so on, mm-hmm. and we enter into production, yes. um, you know, through our languages. Yeah. So eventually, of course, I mean, and the humanizing nature of language mm-hmm. itself, because mm-hmm. it makes you human because it gives you the facility to interact with others and so forth and so on in your terrain. And the stories that are held in each of these languages, you know, they're numerous, they're immense. And we can take advantage of those stories in multiple different ways. Some of those stories would be useful in helping us convince a much larger proportion of our population to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Some of those stories may be really useful in getting us to encourage even more people to register their votes and show up at the poll during election day. Some of those stories may be what we need to change the way that we approach the justice system, right? How the police and citizens interact. Some of those stories may be exactly what we need to change our approach to you know use of pesticides and herbicides while farming some of those stories may be the exact thing that we need to really get into planting trees and working positively towards or even deconstruct patriarchy yeah i yeah, mean yeah, uh, you know we could in fact yes. use those stories again yes, from yes. our community so yes. that instead yes. of theorizing around patriarchy yeah. and uh, and yeah. power dynamics and so on in a 
fairly detached way that our stories could be the ones that give us entry mm-hmm. into the deconstruction. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, the deconstruction of sexism, racism, homophobia. Yeah. You know, I, I think all these knowledges exist. And so when someone says that we need to minimize our languages, what we're losing is the right opportunities to do to, to resolve all these challenges. Brilliant. Nanga, I know you're doing amazing work also on issues of uh, digitization. And I would like to venture now into this work that mm-hmm. you've been involved in, uh, digitizing treaties mm-hmm. and so on. What precisely is it? What is it that you're actually doing at the Athi Initiative? And if you could just also point to me how that relates to your other work in literature. It seems like there are two separate things, but maybe there is a connection and a bridge. Yes, there is a connection. As I was working through my PhD and onto my first book, um, Representations of Land and Landscape in Eastern and Southern Africa, the time frame for that particular book was the mid-1960s to 2015, 2020. And the question was, how are African writers, as I just explained, thinking and, and theorizing about land? How do they depict spaces that they talk about in their books? And what what do we take away from that as readers and, and as Africans? But by the end of the project, the fact that I was ending in the mid-60s became a challenge, you know, it became a problem because I could very quickly see that the history pre-1960s was not only very important, but it had a huge impact on the kinds of land policy that we had. The mid-1950s in Kenya in particular, I think 1952, 1954, Swinaton Plan. Swinaton Plan, 1954, exactly, actually. Yeah, exactly, yeah. That determines a lot of how land policy falls in the 60s, 70s, and, yeah, and on to today. With all the titling and so on. Exactly, yeah. right? And, and there are similar examples across the continent. So I wanted to expand my kind of time, time approach, and I thought back to kind of the beginning of the colonial moment, the 1800s, 1820s, 1850s, and I wanted to explore what or how land featured, especially in that initial contact between colonial enterprises or missionary enterprises or merchant, European merchant enterprises with African communities. And one kind of cultural artifact that seems to me so far to encapsulate that early moment, that first encounter moment, is the land treaty. My initial approach to the land treaty was I expected an official document that has all the bells and whistles and, you know, is you know shows up in a suit and tie, very formal. And there is that, including multiple translations, mm. speaking back to translations, some, you know, so far enough of the documents that I've collected and curated have English translations and Portuguese translations. So there is that. But they are also very informal two, three, four, five lines treaty documents that when you think about how quickly they were drafted and the circumstances under which they were created versus the amount of power that these documents have, it's quite immense and there's a huge imbalance between the way the document looks on the page, five lines with you know, maybe four, five signatures underneath and just the kind of the consequence, right, mm-hmm. the political and economic consequences of that small paragraph had on, on communities and nations, it's, it's really quite mind-boggling for me. So so the basic idea is these treaty documents have had huge, immense consequences on our lives as Africans. Currently, the majority of them are locked away in libraries in the north, so talking about the UK, in London, the British Museum, um, in Belgium, in France, uh, in the US as well, locked away under digital paywalls. Um, recently, I was trying to access one of these digital databases, I won't say the name, but 
for my university to access that digital database, we had to pay about two hundred and fifty US, yeah. two hundred fifty thousand US dollars. Two hundred and fifty thousand US dollars. Thousand. Yes. My goodness. There's there's a big disconnect between the kind of knowledge that was produced about the African continent in the nineteenth century, in the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties, where it is, right? The consequences that it's still having on the continent, and who has access to that knowledge, right? And so the Arthi Initiative, named precisely for the Kiswahili word for land, is trying to bridge that gap a little bit and say, well, you know, the Anglo-Portuguese Treaty took place in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, in some parts of present-day Mozambique, has shipped what has happened to that country to this day and it's important that we begin to understand that history before we can um, better understand the challenges present day challenges and future solutions you know the other initiative says that the treaty that happens between Menelik II and the Italians in 1902 and 1905 that has had serious implications for what's going on in Ethiopia and Eritrea to this day, right? Uh, the kinds of challenges that Abi is, President Abi, Prime Minister Abi is having, to, those are tied to these documents. So, wow. yeah. I'm still in shock at the, the fact that, you know, for us to access documents that relate to, to us. us and that have had such a fundamental impact I mean, if you think on about our land, lives, yeah, that, that we have to pay that level of Yes. And even if you're accessing these for purposes of scholarship. Exactly. There's no free access. You know, some of them are housed physically at the Kenya National Archives. There's a 70-volume produced by the British Parliamentary Papers, and they include land treaties. So they're physically available at the Kenya National Archives. But, you know, the way we we read and the way we educate ourselves now means that the digital component also has to be be in the mix. Wow. And are you looking at the whole continent in the digitization of the treaties? Yes, we are. We've started with Eastern Africa. So we have representative treaty documents from Uganda and Zanzibar and Mozambique and Ethiopia. But we also have representative treaty documents from Sierra Leone and from Lagos, Nigeria. It prompts me to think quite differently about just how the continent's politics have shaped up. So in 2022, Zanzibar is not so much a byline, but it's, you know, it's, it's not Nairobi, you know, it's not Da, it's not Dodoma, it's not Kampala. But in the 1860s, 1870s, Zanzibar was the place. Absolutely. Right? Zanzibar was the place that European merchants, missionaries, colonial administrators would learn that they would get the equivalent of a visa or a passport and then make their way inland. So I think we gain something by recovering those routes of history and and seeing how returning back to a Pan-African moment, right, including these spaces into our imaginary. So I'm personally quite interested in the whole question of restitution of heritage Mm -hmm. because I believe that the children of Africa have a right to access Yes. The heritage yes. that is located elsewhere. Would you consider these treaties on land as part of um, our heritage and that we should be focusing on uh, for purposes of restitution or even if it's not restitution of uh, unfettered access? Yes, absolutely. You know, along with sculptures and paintings yes, and yes. the bronze masks and everything else that was looted from spaces such as the Ashanti Kingdom or Beni, colonial documents that were produced about us and often by us. Meaning for the one or two colonial administrators to get to the space where they're sitting down and drafting this treaty, a huge number of 
indigenous community members have been part and parcel of that expedition. So the David Livingstones, they had porters who were carrying either them or their property. Uh, they had folks they had who were... cooks. They had cooks, obviously. They had guides. Yeah. Our ancestors were part and parcel of these moments. And reclaiming these documents, these documents are not primarily authored only by the one or two European signatories who are on the page. They are authored by everybody else who was on that expedition. Again, thinking about these moments not from a dichotomy of I'm the one who's in charge and everybody else is expendable. The one or two European signatories would never have made it to that space without everybody else who's helping them along. So we recover our history in that way by looking at this at these documents. We recover our history by again looking at this, you know, at the sculptures, at the bronze masks, at the paintings that have been secreted away for the last century or so in um, in these spaces. And restitution isn't an argument by, you know, the British Museum that anybody can come in, the members of the public can come in and, and see them which is an often raised question that mm. it's a public museum, anybody can come and view them without any understanding of just the onerous visa schedules that one would have to make. Mm. Assuming that you have the money to pay the air ticket and the time to do that. Um, no, this restitution means these artifacts need to return Home. And the treaties are part of our history. We generated that knowledge and so on. And I also think that uh, the whole question of the responsibility of the global north on Africa to kind of rectify. And I think that the, this generation of scholars in the global north to put pressure yeah. really on their governments to release these things and make it yeah. possible yeah. for us who are located on the continent to be able to research and even just experience our history afresh. Because yeah. we have every right to experience that history afresh. We do. So again, I really want to thank you for the immense work you're doing, not just writing and teaching and researching, but also developing platforms that uh, support the African continent in terms of retrieval of that which was lost at the moment of colonialism. Yeah. Because sometimes the best innovations are inspired by the past. By the past absolutely. Yeah, so when we are denied that access to that past, then it becomes very, very difficult for us to even even innovate because you have nothing to fall back on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, starting from zero, there's a huge vacuum. Yeah. Um, right? Which I, is why software goes from version 1 to version 20 because you're slightly improving what was there previously. Absolutely. But if you're missing 1, if you're missing one to 15, it's not impossible to do that. Absolutely. And I, I'm really grateful for the comments that uh, you made related to language because you do share perspectives that I hadn't also reflected on. And I think that we have this opportunity to look at language and the ways in which it helps us navigate and uh, be able to do more uh, than we are doing currently. So I really want to thank you, Professor Nganga Mushiri, for your insight. And I hope that we'll be able to have additional conversation uh, when so. you are in Nairobi again. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully next time I can announce that the Athi Initiative has translations of these treaties into, yes. you know... And the languages. And, uh, yeah, exactly. I think that would be a good next step. Right, yeah. to really kind of push that knowledge into the various arenas and both for the potential audience who will read it but also for the initiative itself I think good things happen when that translation yeah. when translation happens yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely I mean translation of course also extends mm -hmm. the original in a sense yeah. and I think this is an, also an area of immense interest I think mm -hmm. that we should have a podcast uh, one day on the whole question of translation mm -hmm. and what it does and why we need to do more and more translations on the continent yeah, so again, thank you very, very much and uh, all the best with the, with the writing. Thank you. It's been uh, a pleasure. Research, yeah. This concludes our first episode in our two-part series of the Africa Speaking Podcast 
in which I have been discussing with Professor Nganga Wahumoshiri. Thank you for listening to the Africa Speaking Podcast. Join us in our next episode, brought to you by Triza Communications. My name is Kimani Njogu. For any comments and views, you can reach us through our website, www.africaspeaking.org. You can also reach us on Facebook, Tuaweza Communications, or on our Twitter handle, at Tuaweza Coms. You can also write to us on email, info at africaspeaking.org.